Chapter Nine of the Submarine Boys Trial Trip. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. The Submarine Boys Trial Trip by Victor G. Durham. Chapter Nine: A Rascally Piece of Work. Now we shall know soon cried David Pollard. He was trembling with the fever of the intense inventor. Out in the little harbor, the Pollard lay on the bottom. In the cabin, besides the three submarine boys, were only Jacob Barnum and David Pollard. The eyes of all five were fixed on a small but ingenious bit of mechanism that had been carefully adjusted near the rear port of the boat's torpedo tube. This was the automatic device first planned by Jack Benson with the aid of his mates, and carried forward to working order by Mr. Pollard. By the aid of this automatic mechanism, was believed that the last man aboard a torpedo boat could let himself into the tube, relying upon the automatic device, first to close the rear port, then opening the forward port, and at the same time letting just the right amount of compressed air into the tube. By this means, the last man aboard a submarine below the surface could provide for his own escape without the aid of a comrade. Eph Summers has been chosen to make the effort. He now stood in his bathing suit, awaiting the word. Go ahead, up, ordered Mr. Farnum. Be very careful to set the device just right. Not one of us is going to touch it. Eph carefully set the time hand on the dial, next crawled into the torpedo tube the rear port of which stood open. Sixty seconds later, the automatic device closed the rear port with a sharp click. David Pollard counted up to fifteen. "'You must have time to clear the boat by now,' quivered the inventor. "'Now, Captain, take us to the surface.' In a twinkling, almost, the Pollard was riding the waves. "'There's Epp dancing up and down on the beach,' reported Captain Jack from the conning tower. "'It worked like a charm,' chuckled Epp Summers gleefully as soon as the others had joined him on the shore that little charge of compressed air shot me out of the tube and up bounded to the surface like a piece of cork now we really lead the whole world in submarine boating cried mr farnum i don't care what any other inventor may have discovered i'm satisfied that no one else can build a boat as safe for the crew as the good little old pollard is so happy did all the five feel in fact they were shaking hands gleefully all around. Then, while Epp rode out to the craft to dry himself and get into uniform, Farnum ran to the machine shops, there sounding several sharp, triumphant blasts on the steam whistle. The whole affair, Epp's escape to the surface, the joy of the submarine party, and the blowing of the whistle were all noted by a spy whom Don Melville had set to the task of watching the Farnum crowd. Don was equally aware that David Pollard had been working day and night in his room at Mr. Farnum's house. They discovered something that pleases them mightily, thought Don, sick with rage. What can it be? I'm going to know it if money still has any power to buy other men's services. Jack Benson may be very happy now, muttered Don, vindictively, but his joy shall soon be turned to ashes, or worse. Nor was Don Melville speaking by mere guesswork. His ignoble nature had evolved the whole plan by which Jack was to be ruined. 
Don even stooped to use his father as an innocent tool in a series of rascally deceptions. "'I got word that you wanted to see me at once,' said Broughton Emerson, dropping in upon Mr. Melville that afternoon at the hotel. "'I certainly do,' returned Mr. Melville, leading the way to an inner room. "'Emerson, you remember me telling you that Farnham's crew are wholly willing to sell out, if the price is right enough?' "'Yes, certainly.' would you like to see that proved by all means if it can be replied mr emerson a look of keen anxiety in his eyes for he had finally determined to use his own judgment and invest heavily in the farnham submarine enterprise will you consent to do a little watching with me asked mr melville what's in the wind tonight at eleven o'clock on a lonely bit of road well out of town replied george melville young captain benson has agreed to meet my son don for what purpose the pollard has recently perfected a submarine boat device of the greatest practical value young benson has promised don to steal the drawings and descriptions pertaining to that device and to turn them over to don for a price of course it's horrible unspeakable gasped mr emerson indignantly of course but i want you to understand the kind of crowd that surrounds farnham it will be a guide to you investing with those people if you go with me to the appointed place ahead of time and we hide close enough to witness whole transaction then you'll believe all that i've been telling you won't you of course nodded mr emerson speaking thickly his whole soul revolted at the treachery of such a transaction which made him mad but won't you and your son melville be in as bad a light through profiting by infernal treachery we would if we did profit replied george melville flushing however as soon as don has dismissed the young black guard benson my son will touch a lighted match to the papers and burn them all with yourself looking on what do you say emerson it's a mean kind of business to take any part in protested broughton emerson but yes i'll go for if such things can be done it is my duty to myself to know plans were therefore made for the meeting in the evening broughton emerson honorable and broad-minded went away from that meeting heavy of heart he hated the whole business and yet he admitted to himself that he must know the truth ere he invested a fortune in other folks business games yet weighted down by the sickening feeling that at best he was about to play the spy Mr. Emerson presently called up Jacob Farnham on the telephone. Farnham, he said, I understand that something is to happen tonight that you and I ought to know. What is it? asked the boatbuilder, alive with curiosity. I'll give you a chance to find out tonight, but you must pledge me your word that you won't breathe a word of this until afterwards, to anyone, not even Pollard. Just come along and learn what you learn, then act as you please. Will you agree to that? yes promised mr farnham good enough then be at broughton emerson followed with instructions for the late coming evening he did not explain who was to be spied upon or anything of the nature of the business though he did add don't be surprised farnham no matter whom you see me with it's all part of the night's walk just follow us both without letting your presence be known at any stage i know this all sounds mysterious but believe me it's going to be vastly worth your while. 
The remainder of the afternoon the boatbuilder's heart was heavy with undefined dread as to what was he to learn that night. In the middle of the afternoon, Don Melville, with the aid of one of his father's Italian workmen, laid the last stone in the edifice of trickery that he was building for the crushing of Jack Benson. Jack was coming down the street from the village when his steps were arrested by the sound of a Turning, he saw an Italian workman beckoning mysteriously. Jack went curiously up to him. I have a message for you. You alone, whispered the Italian, speaking fairly good English. You are in danger of great meanness. One of your enemies plots it. You are one of Melville's workers, aren't you? asked Captain Jack, looking curiously at the fellow. Yes, and you've had a bad, wicked enemies over at our place. Well, I guess that might be true enough, smiled Jack. Some of us are bad over there, and some honest, went on the Italian. Some of us hate much to see dirty work done. And I have a friend who works also for Melville. My friend knows all about what Don would do against you. It's wicked, very. Meet my friend tonight at nine o'clock, and he will tell you all, everything. I can't tell you now, but you will meet my friend. Yes, I guess I will, nodded Jack Benson. But you must go alone, not tell your other friends until you have seen my friend. You must keep all this a great secret. After some further talk, Jack Benson agreed to all this. The Italian seemed wholly honest and earnest. Moreover, he appeared as though greatly troubled and anxious to save the submarine boy from some unusually mean trick. So Jack Benson walked on, thinking deeply and wondering much. He had no suspicion of any trap against him in the person of this seemingly very honest Italian. And so Don Melville had succeeded in laying the last wire of his despicable plan. At half-past eight that fateful night, Jack found a pretext for leaving his companions. Swinging out onto the road and down past the new Melville yard, he went on briskly to the point well out of town that had been named for the meeting. Wonder if I'm foolish, he thought suddenly. Is there any trick in all this? But Shaw, the Melville surely aren't that kind of people, and no one else has anything against me. It's all likely enough that Don is putting up some mean game against me down at the yard, or that he's saying something mighty mean against me. Whatever it is, these Italians are honest enough to feel disgusted, and they want to warn me. That they don't want to have any of Melville's eavesdroppers seeing them with me. That's all natural enough, for these Italians have their jobs to look out for, even if they do hate the rascals who pay him wages. So Captain Jack kept on his way, feeling that any suspicions of the Italians were unfounded, and therefore unnecessary. Meanwhile, David Pollard, after wandering through the grounds around the Farnham home that evening, and missing his friend, the owner, at last decided to go to his own room and read. Always soft-footed, Mr. Pollard made no noise until he turned the knob of the door to his room. Then there was a sudden scurrying sound inside, though he was a man of very nervous temperament. The inventor was no coward. He darted in, in time to see a figure making through the dark for an open window. "'Who's there? Stop!' thundered the inventor, rushing forward. But the intruder did not obey. Hidden behind a book in a bookcase was the inventor's revolver. Mr. Pollard hauled out the book, dropping it, and in a trice had the weapon in his hand, racing again toward the window. 
The intruder had gained the ground by the time Mr. Pollard reached the window. Stop, you thief! Hold up or I'll shoot, warned the inventor. However, the skulker took to his heels. Pollard fired once. The flame spitting from the muzzle of his revolver, but the figure still continued in flight, and the inventor realized that there was no further use in firing. That was odd, thought Pollard. The fellow had on a uniform, just the same as our boys wear. If it wasn't so absurd, might be tempted to believe that, despite the darkness, that was Jack Benson. But he would have no need to break in here. Then Mrs. Farnham appeared with the servants, for the shot had alarmed the household. "'Have you found that anything is missing from here?' inquired Mrs. Farnham, while Mr. Pollard searched and explained at the same time. The inventor now halted before his desk. "'Yes,' he answered dryly though with a slight quiver in his voice, the thief found and departed with the drawings of a most important new device, originated by Benson and his friends, and finished by myself. Oh, I'd rather lose a large sum of money than those drawings. At about this time, Jacob Barnum was prowling carefully about the spot that Mr. Emerson had named. He waited there, in hiding, for a long time, ere Messrs. Melville and Emerson came along. He let them pass, then followed slyly, in accordance with Emerson's directions of that afternoon. Now what on earth does this mean? wondered Jacob Barnum, unable, despite his curiosity, to regard this expedition without a feeling of considerable disgust with himself. Confounded, it's unmanly, this spying on someone else. Makes me feel like a rubber-soled detective, a thug, or a labor picket trying to warn a workman with a lead-stuffed club. Yet Emerson is a gentleman, or I've been fooled. It must be all right, I suppose. The night was dark, and the moon not yet quite due to rise. When it did come up above the horizon, it was certain to be more or less obscured by the clouds hanging there. While Messrs. Melville and Emerson stepped off along the road, Jacob Barnum was forced to keep behind bushes and other natural objects of cover, which increased the boatbuilder's uneasy feeling that he was doing something well-nigh dishonorable. At last, however, the two capitalists stepped off the road, concealing themselves in a clump of bushes, as though by previous understanding. Looks like a prearranged meeting of some sort, reflected the boatbuilder. After having crept close enough to be able to see and to overhear, five minutes went by. Then Don Melville, narrowly escaping running into Mr. Farnham, appeared suddenly before his father and Mr. Emerson. It's almost the time now, laughed Don, speaking in a low voice, as he held his watch close to his eyes. I'll slip right down to the road in plain sight, where you can see what happens. Back of all the rest, in the bushes, Jacob Farnham muttered disgustingly to himself, I like it little enough to find George Melville. I like it still less now that I find Don having a finger in the pie of mystery. Smoke wafted back from a cigarette that Don was smoking. A few minutes thus passed, and there came the sound of a low whistle. Tossing away the stub of his cigarette, Don answered with another whistle. Broughton Emerson straightened up instantly, being well enough hidden for that, and so did Jacob Farnham, whose presence, of course, was unsuspected by either of the Melvilles. Then out from the cover of the woods stepped a boy of sixteen, in a uniform like that worn by the submarine boys. 
Have you got the plans? asked Don in a low voice that was yet distinct to all the listeners. Yes, came in a hoarse whisper from the one in the uniform. Pass them over then, commanded Don. That's right, here's your money in this envelope. Just then, Ray from the rising moon struggled through the filter of cloud, the light touching lightly upon the uniformed one. Jacob Farnham was startled as though he had been shot. It was a great bound at his heart. Jack Benson, he throbbed. By the great shark, are my eyes playing me a hideous trick? End of chapter 9 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan